Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul, as you know, I quote him a lot. (laughs) The late R.C. Sproul once said, loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God that we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we are born of the, special, of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds His holy love into our hearts, unless He stoops in His grace to change our hearts, we will not love Him. To love a holy God requires grace, grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our morbid uh, souls. So um, October 21st, 2018, it's a little more than two years ago, but it after last year, seems probably like a decade ago. But October 21st, 2018, we began this series titled Following Jesus. I don't know if you realize, but that's the date we actually began our journey through the walk, walking through Mark. And in this series, we have made a point to learn about discipleship, learning what it means to be a disciple of Christ and to become more and more like Him, following Him wherever He goes and wherever He leads. Because that is what... The call of the Christian life is, is to follow Jesus. The Christian life is not just simply to sit at home, satisfied in the knowledge that I have been saved. The Christian life is not just simply, you know, to come to an exclusive club once a week and, you know, exchange greetings. The Christian life is not just simply sitting in a comfy chair every week singing, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? He didn't save us simply for us. He saved us for a purpose. And that purpose was for us to actively and continually follow him. In fact, later on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We were saved so that we could follow Christ. And that is exactly what this entire series has been about. It's about walking through the Gospel of Mark, looking at every text, and asking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And from the outside, we established there were three goals that we had in this series. And I think it's good to remind ourselves as we go along what they are. And they are, number one, to proclaim the Gospel. That's always the goal from this pulpit, is to proclaim the Gospel. We make a point to talk about the gospel and preach the gospel every single Sunday. And the book of Mark is actually a great book for that because every text points us back to the gospel. It points us back to our need for Christ. It points us back to 
what we need from God. And so we talk about the gospel week in and week out, and we will continue to do that. And we will always call people to repent and believe just in case somebody is here who has not heard that message before. Not to mention we always need the gospel. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You need the gospel as much today as you did 50 years ago when you first gave your life to Christ, if you've been a Christian that long. So we make a point to proclaim the gospel. Secondly, the second goal is if you are in Christ and you know Christ, we want to take each and every opportunity to help you grow in your walk with Christ. We want to help you to grow in your understanding of who Christ is. We want to help you to grow in your understanding of who you are in light of who Christ is. And we want to help you to grow in your understanding of what God is calling you to do in light of all of that. And every week we look at the text and we look at Mark and what he's teaching theologically, right? And we ask the question, how is this supposed to change us? How is this supposed to shape us? And then, and then third, the third goal is to help you to take action based on what you have learned. It's not simply enough for you to learn what you need to know. You need to know what to do with what you need to know. And so our aim is not to just get you thinking about following Jesus. Our aim is not just to get you talking about following Jesus. Our aim is to actually help you to do it, to actually get involved, to get engaged following Jesus where he has gone in, him, in his own life and then following where he's individually leading all of you. Because I want you to know Christ is leading you all in your own life individually somewhere. And every week our aim is to paint a picture for you of what following Jesus then looks like and then encouraging you to get up out of those chairs and then go out into the world. And after the music is over and after the preaching is done, that you would carry on and actually do it. That's been the emphasis of this entire series since we have begun. And so if you don't know Christ, we want to help you to know him. And if you do know him, we want to help you know him better. And if you really know him, we want you to then take action based on the things that you know and follow him. And so now for over 80 weeks... We have walked through the Gospel of Mark one section at a time, and now we find ourselves nearing the end of chapter 14, which also means we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark because there's 16 chapters. And it is now, as we get near the end, that we begin to face, I would say, some of the most challenging texts. And, and I'm not going to say that they're challenging because they're hard to understand. Like chapter 13, there was some challenging stuff there because there's a wide variety of opinions about what all that means. Right, Brother Richard and I actually were having a brief conversation about that this morning. Right, There's a wide divergence of opinions about what chapter 13 can mean. It's a difficult text, but that's not why these texts are difficult. These texts are difficult that we're going to face for the next couple of weeks is because I think personally these texts, as we face Jesus' passion, that these probably can be some of the most convicting texts in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, this is probably a really good time today as we jump into this text to remind you of something I like to remind you of often. You, you know I love you, right? I'm going to be honest. Today is not my aim, right, to ruffle feathers. But today is a really good text to look in the mirror. Today's a really good opportunity to stare into the Word of God, the mirror of His truth, and look and see who you are. It's about stripping away pretense. It's about setting aside preconceived ideas. It's about taking a really long, honest look and asking what is actually in the way? What is in the way of me following Jesus the way that he's calling me to? Now, before we jump into the text, 
and talk about that, let me remind you of where we are in the context. As always, the context is important for us to keep in mind. It really will help to cement, I think, what we need to derive out of the text. And the first thing we need to remember is where we are in the story. If you remember, Jesus has just been arrested. In fact, just less than a week before this, you realize, just less than a week before this, Jesus rode into town on the back of a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy, proving that he is what everybody suspected him to be, the Messiah. He came in as the victorious king, and they were shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. The city was electric because they believed that he was the one that was coming to save. They just thought that they were gonna, he was going to save in a different way than he was. But Jesus didn't come to end Roman occupation as they might have expected. Jesus came right, not to restore Israel back to nation, uh, world, I mean, world superpower status. He, he came to pronounce judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and her leadership for their rejection of him as the Messiah and for their unfaithfulness to fulfill the mission that God had given them to do. He came also for the redemption of his people, his people, Jew and Gentile alike. And so Jesus cleanses the temple, if you remember, Right? And then he confronts the religious leaders and challenges all of their authority. And then he predicts the temple is going to be destroyed along with the entire city. And he also reminds them that there's going to be a time he's coming back completely. And he gives his followers warning signs of how to recognize those things. And then, if you remember, things begin to calm down just momentarily, but they have the Passover meal and the disciples are there with Jesus, and he institutes the Lord's table, which is, if you remember, a picture of the hope that we have. It's a picture of his promise to be with us and his promise to rescue us by his own blood. It's an ordinance that we do even still today, 2,000 years later. But in addition to that, he also made a point to tell them and remind them of something he'd been telling them over and over again, that he is going to be handed over to his enemies. If you remember throughout the Gospel of Mark, three times he clearly told them that he was going to be handed over and they just kind of like ignored it. Now he reminds them and then he tells them that he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. One of his closest friends is going to hand him over to be killed. And then he tells them that all of them, in fact, will betray him in their own way. They will all fall away. And Peter, who was bold and self-assured, said, I will never fall away. I will follow you even to prison and to death were his words. And the rest of the disciples were like, yeah, me too. But then there they were in the garden. After a long prayer and Jesus anguishing over what it was about to come, he understands he's about to face the wrath of God. He gets himself ready and declares his enemies are at hand. And there they were. And Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and they all abandoned him. And they fled in the dark, and he was arrested, and they physically laid hands on him and hauled him away. And that's where we get to in our story. And Jesus is alone in the custody of his enemies, those who hate him. And so in the span of less than a week, everything has changed and taken a dramatic turn. But there's one more thing we need to be aware of before we get into the story here. It's a detail, I think, that is really easy to overlook in Mark. But it really, I think, 
I think, helps us to see what Mark is driving at here in the text. And, and it's the literary device we have seen Mark use over and over again. It is how Mark sandwiches things together in events and in related events to make a bigger point. If you remember, Mark did this in a big section of text where he, he was talking about and dealing with the spiritual blindness of the apostles. Right? He was pointing out that even though that they were regenerate and they were believers, they were still partially spiritually blind because he would tell them, I'm going to be handed over to my enemies. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And they would either like argue with him, like Peter did, or they would just ignore him. And this happened three different times. And these three different times was sandwiched by events where Jesus healed a blind person. He began with healing a blind person partially and then fully. You have the three times where they demonstrate that they're spiritually blind, and then Jesus then heals one, a person, uh, Bartimaeus, fully and completely. Again, driving home the point that Mark is trying to illustrate. Right? This, is, this, 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 these, this book ending signals the beginning and end of a teaching section. It's something that Mark also we saw throughout the gospel, but also in chapter 14. If you remember, Mark begins a little section where Jesus' enemies want to kill him, but they can't. And then a few verses later, we find out that Judas opens the door for him to be able to kill, for them to be able to kill him. And in between these two events surrounding Jesus' death is this moment where this woman that's unnamed proves herself to be faithful and all in for Christ as she takes you know, this ointment that's worth a year's worth of wages and basically pours it out on Christ. She was all in for him. She was a contrast to what all these other men were. Again, it was a, an important teaching section. Well, Mark does this over and over again, and he does it here. In fact, it's going to begin here at verse 53, and it will end in verse 57 at the end of the chapter. And what we're going to see in this section over the next few weeks is there's going to be a clear contrast between Peter and between Jesus. This is what Mark is purposely setting this up so we can see this contrast. Because the section is going to begin today. Peter is going to follow Jesus, but he's going to keep his distance from Jesus. Right? And then in the end of this section, Peter's going to fully not just keep his distance from Jesus, he's going to fully deny him. Right? So what we're going to see is Peter's kind of like pull back from Christ on the beginning and the end of this. In the middle of this section, we're going to see Jesus ever stalwart who is on trial for his life. And we're going to witness Jesus. He doesn't distance himself from the truth like Peter does, but instead he actually courageously stands on the truth. He doesn't deny the truth about who he is. He courageously stands firm on the truth of who he is. He is, in fact, the complete opposite of Peter in this section here. In fact, we could consider the next few weeks a little mini-series titled A Tale of Two Rocks. Right? Because what is Peter's name? Jesus named him Petros, which means little rock, right? Right? What we find out in this text is the rock of Peter isn't that stable. The rock of Peter is, is actually not immovable. In fact, it crumbles under, under pressure. But what we see is the rock of Jesus Christ, that his rock is unchangeable. He is our rock because he's immovable. He is immortal. He endures forever. The contrast between Jesus' courage and faithfulness and Peter's weakness and fear is an important point that Mark is drawing our attention to. 
And as we, we look at what it means to follow Christ, we have to ask the question, are we more like Christ or are we more like Peter? So now with that in mind, let's turn and look at the text beginning in Mark 14, verse 53. And Mark records, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. Now, I want you to realize that Mark actually moves very quickly through this part of the story. He's moving very fast to the crucifixion, right? And he condenses down some of the details, especially the details that are not important to his own narrative, right? And I want you to realize the other gospels actually we find that there's more detail, right? For instance, they don't go right to the high priest's house. They actually stop at Anna's house, Annas, who was the former high priest and the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas, right? He initially brought, was brought to Annas where he was questioned initially, and then he was taken to the home of Caiaphas, the current high priest, right? And also later on, we're going to see that, that before, uh, that, that he will be taken to Pilate, and then he will also then, Pilate will send him off to Herod, right? And then he'll be brought back to Pilate, and Mark will omit, omit that part of, of the story as well. And the reason for that is not relevant for the point he's making in his gospel, and, which is important for us to keep in mind, because as you read the four different gospel accounts, what you're going to find is there are going to be some differences in the details, because there are four different individual eyewitness accounts, and they were all four written for different purposes. And as such, they're going to differ in some of the details. And so it's very common for us to see that there are multiple different points of view in how they describe the same event. And, and so that's what we see here. There have been people who compare the Gospels and they will say, because the narratives have some differences in the details, they'll say, well, they're contradictory. But what you actually need to realize is, is that there is a context to each one of these Gospels. And each one of these Gospels, actually, if you read them, are complementary to one another, filling in the gaps and the details of, that, that, that you might initially miss by just reading one of them. It's like getting the other side of the story. It's like getting multiple eyewitness accounts to the same event. And so there's a context there that, that helps us to put that together. And so Mark, for the sake of his purpose, he just goes right to the... To, um, to Caiaphas's house. He goes right past Annas' house to, to, uh, to having the gathering of the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas's house. And so here is where we are. Jesus has been physically taken into custody. And I say physically because they literally laid hands upon him. Right? He was their enemy. He was somebody they were arresting. They physically were restraining him. They weren't being nice to him. And so now they have brought him to the very place his enemies are gathering his enemies that are seeking to put him to death. His enemies have been seeking to put him to death for, for many years now. And he's about to stand trial before them as they try to come up with sufficient evidence to find a reason to put Jesus to death. Because I, I want you to understand this. This is not about, are we going to figure out if he's guilty or not? That's not the question they're seeking to answer here. This is not a fair trial. This is not a preliminary hearing. They have already made up their minds. He needs to die. He must die. He's guilty of something. Let's figure out what it is. That's the point of this. 
It's not whether or not he did something wrong. It's what can we make stick so we can get this guy killed. Now, this is the trial that he's at, and we're going to talk more about that next week, right? Because there's certainly a great deal to unpack there. But today, by way of setting all this conversation up, I want to focus on one verse here. One verse in 54 about Peter. And so let's take a look really quick. It says, And Peter had followed him at a distance. I'm going to read that again for you. I want you to hear the words. Peter had followed him at a distance. This right here, brothers and sisters, is why we need to slow down at times when we read the Bible. We need to read it in detail. We need to read it carefully. We need to read it intentionally. We need to look at every phrase and think about the details of why it was written the way it was written. Because I'm, I'm going to read this again for you one more time. I want you to hear this. Peter had followed him at a distance. Let that just sink into your heart and mind for just a moment. Peter, after his initial shock, after regaining his composure, after fleeing the scene, he finally gets a grip on his emotions and he, he turns himself around and he finds a little bit of strength somehow to turn around and follow this horde, armed horde that has just hauled off Jesus. He's made up his mind to follow where they go. And he followed them to the house of the high priest. And getting there, he, he, makes, he gets the courage to go inside the courtyard. A dangerous place for him. The home of the high priest. And Peter followed him in a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, it says. And he was, it says, sitting with the guards and warming himself with at the fire. He followed Jesus to his trial. Now, for whatever else we might say about Peter, okay, we need, we need to at least acknowledge on some level He's making good on the promise that he made on some level. Right. All the other disciples ran for cover and didn't even look back. In fact, one of them ran away naked, if you remember. Right. But Peter, and perhaps one other, because the Gospel of John mentions one other, but Peter actually turned around and risked his own life to follow where Christ was being led. So Peter did follow Jesus, but it's important for you to see how he followed him. He followed him at a distance. He was there, but he kept his distance. And this is important because this is the thing that we need to see. This is the thing that all of us need to stare into the, the mirror of God's word and see. Because Peter said, even though that all will fall away, I will not. And then he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you to both prison and death. He was saying, I'm ready to go wherever you go, Lord. 
I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you. In fact, he said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But here Peter is in the courtyard standing with Jesus' enemies. And yes, he is there. And yes, he followed Jesus, but he is still denying Christ by his distance. You do realize that. His distance is the beginning of his denial. For whatever we might give him credit for, his distance is still his beginning of his denial. He might be there in geographically in, in the area. He might be there in proximity, but he is not with Christ. He might think in his heart that he, following, he was following Jesus, but his actions betray the fact that he is already beginning to deny him. He is already beginning to separate himself from him. He is already beginning to keep distance from Jesus. He is already in the process of denying Jesus. And this is really, really important for us to meditate on because many of us don't think, we think that falling away from Christ is like, I make a decision to fall away from Christ. It is not like that. It is a process that begins with a simple step to distance ourselves. Because if the other disciples were with, with him there, if there was another couple of disciples with him and they were all quietly huddled together, Peter probably would no doubt because of his boldness or his arrogance, we could say, would say, I am here for Jesus. He would tell them, I am here because of Jesus. I am all in for Jesus. But then the moment when the enemies come up to him and confront him, what does he do? We know what happens. He denies even knowing Jesus. In fact, the, the first person that confronts him is like a junior high girl. He didn't have any problem at all throwing Jesus right on the bus. He's not going to say, well, I used to fall him, but not anymore. He's going to even deny even having anything to do with him at all. Peter might be there in the moment thinking that his presence means something, that somehow he's supporting Jesus. He might be thinking his presence in the courtyard means that he's with Jesus, but his distance is saying, I have already given up on him. I just haven't had the heart to admit it to myself yet. I really don't want to be associated with him. I really don't know him. Read that again. And Peter had followed him at a distance. I want you to hear me on this I, and understand it's not my aim to hurt feelings today at all. It's not my aim to make people feel uncomfortable, but it is my aim to tell people the truth. And the truth is, you and I need to embrace the truth that you cannot follow Jesus at a distance. I'm going to say that again. I think that, that we need to just bear this in mind. We need to take it and let the weight of it sit on us. You cannot truly follow Jesus the way that he's calling you to follow him at a distance. Because keeping your distance from Christ is already a step toward denying him. That's the way it is with Peter right here. He wants 
to be near Jesus. He feels an emotional connection to Jesus. But he's keeping his distance and he's trying to leave himself an out. He's trying to leave himself some room to save himself. And at the opportunity that he can, the first opportunity, what's he going to do? He's going to get out. He's going to fully deny everything that he ever knew about Christ. And understand, it doesn't say that he denied Christ one time. It's not just a one-time accidental thing. It's three times calling down curses upon himself. This full denial of Christ begins with Peter keeping his distance from Christ. You cannot follow Jesus where he's leading you at a distance. You cannot follow Jesus the way he's calling you to at a distance. Because if you do, at some point, you will be in a position to openly deny him. If you follow Christ at a distance, if you follow him, but kind of keep you know, an eye on the horizon, keep your distance from him, so that you're not fully, completely identifying yourself with him, there's going to come a point where you will deny him. And that's what we see in the world today. Brothers and sisters, the, what's happening in the world is not a mystery. It certainly surprises us how fast some of these things happening are, can happen. But what's happening in the world is not mysterious. It's the way the world is. This is how people are. We see this in our country. People who, who, who have been thinking they're following Jesus, who say that they have a connection to Christ but they're really just simply lurking in the shadows, hoping the wrong people don't see them and identify them. They're hoping that they can still maintain this connection to Christ, but at the same time, not having the rest of the world and the crowd to look down on them. I would say a large percentage of the people who would call themselves Christ followers are just following Jesus at a distance. And, and, and I don't want to overgeneralize that. You know, I don't want to make statements where I'm like impugning everybody. But I, I think it would be safe to say that a large percentage of people who identify themselves as Christians in America will live like Peter lives in this moment. And do you know how I know that? Because nobody around them can see that they're sold out for Christ. No one around them is taken aback by how they live. Right? Nobody around them is seeing them standing next to Christ, saying, I'm with him no matter what happens. Right? I'm going where he goes no matter what happens. I'll do what he calls me to do. I'm going to labor and do all the things that Christ is calling me to do. The world doesn't bear witness to that. They're not seeing that in so many of people who call themselves Christ followers. And don't get me wrong. These people might attend church. And they, they might, once in a while, and they might watch sermons online and have their favorite YouTube preachers, and they might post a lot of scriptures from time to time, or, or at least like the, you know, type, you know, like an amen if you want Jesus to bless you kind of thing. They might even have a, a Jesus bumper sticker on the back of their car. But when you get past the superficial things, when you look at their lives, in the areas that really matter, you will find that they're living just like the rest of the world. They're unchanged. You can't tell them apart from the rest of the world. Notice Peter in the story, what he's doing. 
What's he doing here? It says he's sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. He's sitting with the enemies of Christ, pretending to be one of them. Pretending to be like them, sharing the warmth of the fire with them. Sharing this companionship and this warmth. He's making a point to not distinguish himself at all from them. He's making a point to blend in. He's making a point to not look like a Christ follower in this moment. If there is a better metaphor for what has become American Christianity and much of the American church, generally speaking, I don't know what it would be. Christian worship in our country has become a combination of concerts and self-help seminars and TED Talks. Christian worship is about feeling good rather than glorifying the one true living God. Christian worship in, in many churches is about making you feel better about yourself rather than convicting you of your sins that you grow. Christian worship is about being more like other people rather than being more like Christ. A survey of American evangelical churches, you will see, I'm not telling a lie here. I mean, if you go and you look at what, what passes for mainstream evangelicalism and what people see in the world around us, tell me I'm wrong. For many, the Christian faith is becoming, has become nothing more than, okay, now, since we're gathered together, remember, go out into the world and be nice. Because that's the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. That's what you can boil down American Christianity to be. Tell me I'm wrong. Because when a Christian speaks up and gets firm, what, what happens? What kind of Christian are you? You call yourself a Christian? What, because I'm not being nice? Right? The thing is, is they're like, well, if you're nice enough, right, and you emphasize, em empathize enough, and if you're sufficiently woke enough and you're cool enough and you're, and you're, and you're loving enough and careful enough, then, then hopefully then maybe secretly somebody will come up to you and ask you about this relationship you have with Jesus. And then finally, then you, can, you get a chance to tell them about Christ and how he's changed your life. But don't let them see that, he, that he's changed your life because that might scare them off. Make sure you don't offend anyone. That's how many people see the Christian faith. In fact, I, uh, I, I followed a pastor for a long time who is one of the best communicators I've ever seen. And I will still say that. Dude is just super sharp. But his mission for his own church, as in his own words, is to create a church for unchurched people. Right? And, and, and that sounds like a noble idea, but the idea actually when you unpack it and hear what he has to say is really to create a church that's so unlike church that people who are not familiar with the church will actually and who hate the church will actually come in and hang out. That's the whole point, is to be so unlike the church that people outside the church will want to come in the church. The idea is that to be unlike the church to the point where the unchurched are just attracted by the, by the way things are. And this pastor brags about the fact that he regularly has unbelievers who attend the church, people who don't believe in God, right? But, but because the message makes them feel good, they come back week after week after week. And, and these people actually are allowed not only to hang out at the church, but also are allowed to serve in the church as unbelievers. Believing in Christ doesn't matter to that church. 
What matters is the experience that you have and how it feels to you. And if that's not bad enough, the pastor's made a point to say that the Christians need to stop saying things like, the Bible says. He actually said that in a sermon. You need to stop saying, the Bible says, because the Bible doesn't say anything. That's his words, his exact words. The Bible doesn't say anything. It's a, just a collection of ancient manuscripts. It's his exact words. This is a Southern Baptist church. And then he went so far to say, is we as New Testament Christians need to unhitch our theology from the Old Testament, which I don't know how you do that and still be a Christian. But Now, why would he say this? Why would he focus on this? Why would he build this church this way? It's because he wants to get rid of all the stuff that makes people uncomfortable. All the stuff that might offend somebody. All the other stuff that, that actually shows how different Christ is from the world. And if we show them how different Christ is, if we really show them how different Christ is, we might not have the opportunity to secretly indoctrinate them, which I think is the most insidious way to even approach evangelism anyway. We're not going to tell them what we're really about. We're just going to kind of sneak that in. And we just want them to love us because we're nice and then tell them about Jesus. Right? Because that approach, is their idea is how they can win people to Christ by hiding it from them. And then following Jesus and what he commanded then just secretly becomes the, the things you slowly indoctrinate people in. Like, surprise, guess what? You have this to do too. Talk about following Jesus at a distance. Well, the thing is, is what you need to realize, is this is not unusual though. That's the disheartening thing, I think, for me, is that this is not some outlier church. This is a mega church that actually has multiple campuses, that actually has multiple churches associated with them, that are all building their church on the same exact model all across the United States of America. And they're not the only church that has this kind of philosophy. In fact, one of the largest churches in the nation that happens to be in Orange County is pastored by a very famous pastor who I think in the past has done really, really good things. He has recently said the problem with the American church during the COVID area during the COVID era, is the only purpose of small local churches is worship. That's exactly what he said. That's the problem, is that all they have is worship. All they have is the gathering of God's people in order to come before the Lord, worshiping Him through singing and fellowship in the reading and the preaching of God's Word. He said, that's all they have. And then he says, but not our church. Even though we can't worship God... We have several other purposes. Even though we can't do what we've been called to do and what churches have been doing for 2,000 years, we're better off because we have other purposes is what he said. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me on this. If you don't have worship, you don't have a church. You might have a club. You might have an association. You might even have a multi-million dollar organization. But you don't have a church. Because the church, the purpose of the church, as we've talked about, is the worship of God. It's about, to, it's about bringing the worldwide worship of God. That is the purpose of the church. Right? In fact, we, we made it really, really clear. The express purpose of the church is to glorify God through how? Worldwide worship. And yes, we do other things too like outreach and ministries of mercy and loving our neighbors and food and all these other things. But as we talked about a few weeks ago as well, all of these other things are for what? 
the exact same end, which is the glory of God through worldwide worship. It's all the same. But the American church, broadly speaking, and I say broadly because I'm, I'm going to tell you there are a lot of faithful churches out there. But the American church, when you think about what American church means in the mind of the average American, the American church, broadly speaking, is following Jesus at a distance. And you can see it. That's why there are more and more churches that, put, that, that won't publish their statement of faith. I don't know if you realize that. One of the things that I always do whenever I, I like read an article by somebody that I don't know, I find out a couple of things. Number one, where they go to school. Okay, That gives me some indication where they are theologically. Not always. There are bad apples at every school, and there are some good apples at bad schools. right? But that gives me at least a track to run on, and then I find out what church they go to, what church they connected to, because... I want to know what that church believes and what they teach. And what I'm finding is the further we go in this century, the more and more churches will give you core values, but they're not telling you the statement of faith. They're shying away of, of telling you what their, their statement of faith is. Right? They don't want to declare out loud what it is they believe about Christ they just want to get you in so you feel good and then slowly indoctrinate into that statement of faith. That's why sermons also are more about stories today and illustrations and life application than they are about the actual scriptures themselves. And heaven forbid that a sermon go longer than 45 minutes. The American church, broadly speaking, is following Jesus at a distance and there is... right. It's they want to be there in the vicinity. They want to be associated to some degree, but they don't want to be too close. And hear me. This is going to become more visible as we go along. The changes that have happened in the last couple of months, just politically, I don't care how you feel about the election, I'm just saying you see what's happening in politics, you see what's happening in corporations, you're seeing what happens in just different groups of people. Things are changing. And we're going to see more and more and more of this. That more and more churches and more and more Christ followers are going to look less and less like Christ and more and more like the world. And it's already happening. It's already happening. We are right now an independent Baptist church. And what that means for us is we're historically Baptist in our faith and creed. Right? We hold to the Baptist you know, doctrines and traditions, but we don't have a formal association with a group of other Baptists. We don't have a denomination that we're a part of. We were once at, in our history a first Baptist, I mean, a, a, um, a Southern Baptist church, uh, and then at one point we had become an American Baptist church, and then years ago we became just simply an independent Baptist church with no formal ties to an organization. That being said, we did, about nine years ago, adopt for ourselves um, the Baptist faith and message for our statement of faith, right? And which was produced in 2000 by the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, again, we're not Southern Baptists, but it is a very strong, orthodox statement of faith, and it really covers the essential things that makes us Christians and really highlights who we are distinctively as Baptists, what makes Baptists Baptists, so to speak. And it's a clear teaching on the foundational things that we believe. And even though we're not connected to the SBC, we've adopted this statement of faith because I think it really reflects really well what we believe. I think it's a good place to start. 
But in spite of the strength of a document like this, and I really hope that you do read it, um, at this moment, this, the Southern Baptist Convention, if you're paying attention, is in chaos right now. It's in chaos. Because many of the churches that belong to the Southern Baptist Convention are openly, right now, in violation of their own statement of faith. Completely in violation of many of the points on their statement of faith, specifically with respect to teachings on marriage and the teaching on the sufficiency of Scripture and the teaching on specifically gender roles and leadership in the church. There's an open rebellion right now happening in the church. And many of these churches are not just falling away that way, but they're adopting dangerous and worldly philosophies that stand in stark contrast to the gospel itself. Ideas like critical race theory, which comes from critical theory, which is a communist doctrine. Churches that are openly promoting and embracing socialism. They're embracing these things, not because they're biblical, but because they're more relevant to the changing world. They see the direction the world is going, and they feel the pressure of their communities, and they're bowing to the pressure to adopt those things and to, to synchronize them things with their church. And it's infected the thinking of many who, people in those churches, especially pastors. We're hearing pastors preach on things from the pulpit that were unheard of 20 years ago. But this year, because of so many people's disdain for particular political candidates and particular political points of view, pastors, pastors are openly endorsing from their pulpit candidates who were not only pro-abortion, but pro-abortion all the way up past the day of birth. We're talking about people who are, are pro-LGBT to the point that they're pro-hormone therapy for children who are confused about their gender identity. There are pro-candidates that who are openly saying that our mission is to lessen the influence of the Bible and Christianity in America. I don't care how you vote, but to advocate for those ungodly positions from the pulpit We've seen pastors and preachers, classically conservative Christians, you know, begin to deny the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. They're beginning to soften on that idea that, by the, that the Word of God is His Word and it's unchanging. Pastors are promoting false teachings and giving consent to unqualified teachers. And I fear that many of these churches are headed the way of many mainline liberal denominations, organizations that call themselves churches but are simply just the reflection of the world around them with some Christian labels attached to them. Many churches and many Christians are attempting to follow Jesus at a distance. They're attempting to be like Peter, who's trying in this moment to be like everyone else and blend in with the rest of the world. This is, they have an emotional connection to Christ, maybe even have a professing relationship with him, but they're denying him in their actions. Remember, you were not called to be like the world. I want you to understand that. I want you to hear that. We are not called to be like the world. We are called to be different. In fact, Jesus said in, in John chapter um, 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me 
before it hated you. And then he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I don't know how it could be any more clear than that. Remember that the world, remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The call to follow Christ is a call to stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world. We don't sit with the world. We don't warm ourselves with the fire of the world. We stand up and we stand out from the world. And we boldly and clearly identify ourselves with Christ knowing all the while someone's going to hate us for it. Knowing that we might even suffer for it. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous, sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We are not called to be like the world. We're called to follow Christ, not keeping our distance, not giving ourselves some room between him and us, lest they readily identify us with him. No, we're to follow him closely and intimately for all the world to see in us. What they need to see in us is the reflection of the image of Christ. That's what what Paul says, that we were ordained to to be made into the image of Christ. You cannot follow Christ the way that you were called to at a distance, because if you do, you were on your way to deny him like Peter. But why do so many people try to follow Jesus at a distance anyway? Besides the fact that they have some emotional connection to Christ, and and then they want to be seen, at least in some respects, as following Jesus, why do people actually pull away when things get hard? Well, there's actually four major reasons, and I I want to take you through these rather quickly. There are four reasons why people profess to be Christians who would attempt to follow Jesus, but do so all the while keeping some distance. And I think the first one is probably the most obvious, the one that we're going to see the most, and that's what we see here with Peter. And what Peter's facing is external pressure. He's facing persecution. Obviously, he knows. If he identifies himself with Christ, he's really going to be in trouble. Following Jesus at that moment and being identified with Jesus was going to cost him something. That's the reality. It's external pressure. This is when the outside world puts pressure on the believer, whether it's a government or the community or whether it's a family member or whether it's employers or peer groups. This is when following Jesus can come at a real, tangible, measurable cost. And this right here is a real test for Christians. Because it's easy, right, to say praise the Lord when the sun is shining. It is easy to say I love Jesus when all the bills are paid. It is easy, right, to say praise God when no one's after you. But what about when things get externally hard? Like financially, 
This is one of the things we're seeing, right? I mean, throughout history, Christians have been subjected to financial penalties for their faith. This is something that's been common throughout the history of the Christian church. In the first century, Jews and Romans alike were making a point to exclude Christians out of the marketplace, preventing them from buying and preventing them from selling their goods, making life hard on them financially. In fact, in the late first century, Christians were required, all people were required, but especially Christians were required to worship Caesar in order to participate in the marketplace. They had to publicly worship him and then receive on their hand and on their forehead a mark that that's what they had done for that day. It's where the idea in Revelation comes from. It's a submission to authority over the authority of Christ. And Christians who refused to publicly do that were excluded from buying and selling. Their life was hard because of that. And at many times, they would actually just take them out and kill them. But financial pressure is a huge external force that the world brings against Christians, and they always have, and we're beginning to see that more and more and more right now. If there's any question about, if you had any suspicions about where the big technology companies were headed, we can see it now. We know for a fact what they believe, how they feel about people like us, and what they're looking to do in the future. Big tech companies are de-platforming people in groups. And, and, and this is not just, hey, you know, you can't see your pictures anymore. We're talking about people losing their livelihoods and money as a result. Why? Because there's somebody at Amazon that doesn't like what you had to say. That's why. This is resulting in a gigantic loss of revenue for people. Christian authors are having their books disappear from Amazon because they don't like the content. Spotify is saying, I don't like that person, so we're not going to put them on. I mean, employees of Spotify are saying, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to basically strike if you allow this person to have their voice heard on our platform. Ministries that are being labeled as hate groups are not even be given a platform at all. I mean, think about this. And, and here's the thing. I don't care what you feel about the president or elections or whatever. If you, if you don't shudder at the idea that the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, can have his voice silenced on over, over technology, we can all be silenced. Like that. Scary times. But, 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 th but I've actually seen this happening to different groups before. Focus on the Family has been deplatformed multiple times. It's getting harder and harder to find their stuff on the internet because search engines are bypassing them. Right? Crowdfunding Groups like GoFundMe have been selective in how they'll actually help people nowadays. If you're somebody who's trying to raise money for your legal fees and they don't like what you stand for, then they'll just deny you the ability for people to support you. It's happened multiple times already. And even now, groups are trying to have, you know, uh, tax statuses changed for the church right now. People are, are basically saying, if you don't teach what we think you should teach about the LGBT community, if you don't become an affirming church, is what they say, then what we're going to do is look to have you lose your tax-exempt status. They're, they want to economically impugn the church. In our world right now, churches and individuals face growing financial pressure to distance themselves from the message of the gospel in Christ in order to stay afloat. But that's just one way the world promotes its progressive agenda. Another way is through external pressure legally. 
legal pressure. There's been points in our history where Christianity has been illegal in multiple countries, especially in the Western world. And in this moment, it's illegal in places like Iran, in places like, like North Korea, and it's heavily regulated in places like China. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but China has rewritten the Bible to support their communist doctrine. Remember the story in John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery? I think it's probably one of many of our favorite stories. Right? It, you know, it reads, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, he said, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They thought they had him trapped, right? They said, this was they said to test him, and that they might have some charge to bring up against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as he, was, as he continued, he asked, they asked him, and he stood up, and he said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And then when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. What a hope-inspiring story, right? What a beautiful picture of who Christ is. It also reminds us to be careful in how we judge other people, right? What a great story. Well, let me me read for you exactly word for word how the Chinese government has rendered these verses. The crowd wanted to stone the woman to death as per the law. But Jesus said, let the one who has not never sinned throw the, the first stone. Hearing this, they slipped away one by one. When the crowd disappeared, listen to this, when the crowd disappeared, Jesus stoned the sinner to death saying, I too am a sinner, but if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. This is a full denial of the deity of Christ. This is a full denial of the sinlessness of Christ. This is not just a, you know, you know, a misrendering of the text. This is a wholesale bastardization of the text. And the Chinese government says, you want to be a Christian? Then this is your book. You have to read this. You have to preach this. You have to teach this. That is where the beloved Chinese are going. The Chinese that many people can't say anything negative about unless they get fired from their jobs. But even now in our own country, there are increasing calls by many people to force a change in the message of Christ. There are calls for more and more inclusivism and tolerance, especially with respect to the, to the, the issue of marriage and gender and gender roles, and especially the exclusiveness of the gospel. Everybody hates the exclusive nature of the gospel. And even now, Congress is trying to force the issue. Congress is trying to pass what's called, they call the Equality Act. I always love how they put these titles on here that sound wonderful, the Equality Act. What it simply does is it elevates all the LGBT issues to civil rights issues, fundamentally, ultimately removing religious freedom protections from Christians. Because now this isn't so much a freedom of religion thing, it's a civil rights issue. This is an attempt to force everyone, including the church, to accept 
the LGBT agenda, meaning that churches will be forced to marry, to marry same-sex couples, that churches will be forced to accept those practices, including restrooms and other things. This is the legislation they introduced in March, by the way, but they couldn't get it passed because of the Senate and because of the president. But now everything's changed, and it will, they will get it passed. Secondly, there's a coalition called the Secular Democrats of America. And again, I don't care where you come from, but this is what they call themselves, Secular Democrats of America. They published a 38-page letter that was written to Joe Biden, in essence demanding that all Christian perspectives about issues be deemed irrelevant, that they're calling upon the, the, the federal government to, to make all their decisions aside from any religious perspective at all, not considering that. They only want to consider secular perspectives and what they call science, which, again, is interesting because there's some confliction there. The point is that the, the idea that Christians and Christian faith have no business influencing the direction of our country. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, the country we have that's lasted for 200, over 200 years, that has been the beacon of hope for the world, is what it is because we have been a Christian nation with a Christian foundation that have been self-governing people because we have believed the truth of the word of God. But this is a call to abandon that ideal altogether. And it's not just the federal government either, right? It's not just the federal government. The state of California, we talked about just a couple of years ago, if you remember, they actually passed a law that basically outlawed any type of book or counseling on, on helping someone to overcome unwanted same-sex uh, attractions. Basically, any person who says, I have these feelings, I don't want these feelings, how can you help me? They were going to make that illegal to help them. Now, by God's sovereignty, the law passed, but then they withdrew the law before the governor signed it. All I can say is it's God's sovereignty giving us a reprieve. But that's where we are, right? Not to mention there's cities and municipalities who have sued people and fined people, right, and, and threatened people with jail time all across our country for what? Their, their religious convictions. We've seen it. People who, have, who, have, who refuse to bake cakes or take photographs or pr produce videos, and they're all being pressured legally to abandon their Christian faith. And, and many people in churches are beginning now to capitulate and change their stance on a number of core issues. And, and this is going to continue, by the way, as more and more LGBT-affirming people will continue to pressure the churches. As, as churches abandon the inerrancy of Scripture, as churches become more and more inclusive of other faith structures, they're going to do so because of legal and financial pressure. I've even heard it like in, in other circles. I've read articles where, where pastors are talking about we need to rethink things because of. We don't need to rethink those things. The word is the word is the word is the word. And then third, there's the cultural pressure. The cultural pressure that we feel is applied through institutions like the media, like the arts, like education, like, like the market. Right? These are groups of people right, who want to shape popular culture. And we've seen it, right? They use their influence to promote this progressive agenda. They are demonizing everyone who doesn't see things the way that they do and, and, and are calling everyone who doesn't bigots. They mock people who are Christians, right? And they use insults like bigots and, and homophobe and racist and try every possible... By the way, there are a lot of words that don't even have any meaning anymore because they're just overused for reasons that aren't even what they were invented for. But they use these words to try to silence people. 
They attempt to shame Christians into changing how they view traditional things like marriage and the sanctity of the unborn life and the exclusivity of Christ. Right? And it's, we know it's a relentless assault. You can't go to the movies without seeing this agenda. Right? It's on the news. It's, it's even in your favorite you know, show that you like to binge watch. I mean, Kim and I, we finally got to catch up on a season of a show we've been watching for years and had to make a point to hit all these particular hot-button issues. They did, you know, they addressed the transgender issue, they addressed this issue, and that, and, and even the main character was pontificating of how people could be so intolerant. I'm just going, that dude's talking about me, you know? And I, and I realize it's, it's fiction, but the reality is this is what, what, what culture is doing. We're continually being preached at by a cadre of rich and famous and celebrities all telling us what they think we should feel and, and how we should behave. These external forces are powerful and the consequences on the church individual believer, right, the consequences are real. Right? They will cost you something. It will cost you something to truly follow Christ. It might cost you money. It might cost you friendships. And we've seen that even on Facebook, how I read, read, read another post of a family member who basically deleted and won't ever talk to another family member again because of just have a different perspective. It's going to cost you friendships. It's going to cost you jobs. It might even cost you your life in, in this time. Following Christ is, has always come at a cost. Hence the reason why he said, Deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. But we've lived at a time, by God's grace, for so long where the cost was so low. But the cost is going to increase. And we will see many more people deny Christ in order to bow down to the pressure of the world around them. They will distance themselves between Christ and the church they will claim to follow him, but they will grow less and less like him because of these pressures. Don't believe me? When's the... Just look at the, look at the world around us right now. Look at what the church is doing. But the truth is, many sincere believers, and perhaps many of us in this room, will boldly stand up to the external pressure. Many of us will stand up and not allow the government to, to dissuade us. Many of us will be willing to stand up against the hateful mob and risk our lives for the cause of Christ. Many of us will do those things in order to follow Christ. But all the while, in other ways, we will distance ourselves from Christ. And, and I say that is... There are other ways that many of us do. And many of us do in this moment. Not that we intentionally do, but we just instinctively do. Don't believe me? When's the last time that you actually took an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel with somebody? You kind of knew that you should have. Kind of felt led to, but you're like, I'm not going to do that. When you had an opportunity to really invest in someone's life, but you, you didn't. You see, we might not be able to be coerced by external pressure, but many of us, many of us fall pressure to internal pressure. We fall prey to the internal pressures. Internal pressures that keep us from actually following Jesus really where he wants us to go. Like, for instance, the fear of rejection. 
I'm going to tell you right now, if there is a fear that plagues the Christian church, it is that one, is the fear of being rejected. We fear being rejected by our family members and our neighbors and our friends and even the strangers we meet that we're not going to ever see again. We still fear rejection by them. Many Christians will not engage in, in, and share the hope of Christ with the world around them because they fear being rejected and feeling uncomfortable when someone starts to push back on them when they share the, the hope of Christ or when they ask questions that are hard to answer. It's really easy to just kind of retreat into, well, I just don't have time or just, you know, I don't have an opportunity. I want you to understand we all feel like that, by the way. <laughs> Everybody does. But this is where we have to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, what do we value more? The approval of God or the approval of man? And that's really the issue I think we have to come back to. I think the second fear that we have internally is the fear of missing out. This is, I think, the second big one. The fear of missing out. It's another internal pressure, and we struggle to live right? our lives as as consecrated believers to God because we don't want to miss out on the things that the world has to offer. I mean, there is just times for us as Christians, it's hard for us to say, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be a part of that. I shouldn't even want that. This includes everything from entertainment to going to parties and the way that we dress included in, in, in those that we, we hang around. Sometimes we, we distance ourselves from Christ just because we just... We don't want to look like a Jesus freak to everyone else around us. We don't want to be considered a prude. We don't want to be considered, you know, one of them old-fashioned Bible thumpers. I mean, let's be honest. We want to be invited to everything. We want, we want, to, we want to be part of the fun. We want to be included. We want that sense of belonging to our peers around us, right? And in the process, we end up denying Christ in our actions, in our words, and our attitudes around them because we're trying to be so much like them and be, be accepted by them, not realizing what we're actually doing is putting a stumbling block in front of them, the people that God has positioned us in our lives to be a witness to. And I want you to know, like this, this, is, this is one of those areas that this guy struggles with too. Right? We want to be seen as cool and relevant and fun to those around us, but we'd rather, right, we should be shining the light of Christ and go wherever he leads, no matter what happens. Even if they say, don't invite him. And then there's the most subtle, but perhaps the most difficult pressure internal to overcome. I say it's the most subtle because I think we can hide this one the best. And that is the fear of letting go. <clears throat> the call to grab hold of Christ is a call to let go of everything else. But for some reason, there are some things that we just want to hold on to in our lives. Some of us want to hold on to our old lifestyles. Sometimes we just, for some reason, we just want to hold on to the way things were. We, want, we don't want things to change. In fact, I heard someone say, I believe in Jesus. I just don't, I'm not ready to follow him because I'm just not ready to give up some of these things. 
So many people have parts of their lives that they know that Christ is calling them to let go of, but they just don't want to do it. They want to try to walk somehow precariously in two different worlds. They want to follow Jesus, but at the same time keep their distance from Jesus, just like, like Peter. In fact, this has given rise to the false idea of what many people have called falsely, by the way, it's a false teaching, the carnal Christian. It's this idea that if you make a profession of faith, you're saved no matter what, and it doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life. You can go and do everything you want to do, but as long as you have that profession of faith and call yourself a Christian, you're good. That's just not how, the, that's not how that works. If you meet Jesus Christ for real, He will change your life. If you put your faith and trust in Him, things will change. But there is an attempt even by believers to kind of keep trying at least to the fringes, holding on to parts of their old life. Another place where people tend to let go of, and this is probably the biggest problem for Christians, is they tend to hold on to their fears and their hurts. They really, really fear letting go of those hurts, those, especially those devastating hurts. It's something that a majority of people wrestle with is hurt. They struggle to let go of the hurt. So many Christians struggle to let go. That's why they struggle with forgiveness. They just don't want to let it go. They know that they're being called to let it go. They're reminded of it all the time. They read the Bible. It says, let it go. Forgive as you've been forgiven. But there's something in us still that feels entitled to that hurt. It's mine. I don't want to give up on this. I'm identified with this hurt. It's who I am. I have a right to be angry about this. I have a right to be bitter. I have a right to hold on to this grudge is what we tell ourselves. But the truth is we know that it's incompatible with what Christ is calling us to do and where He's calling us to go. It's incompatible. This is a thing that's causing distance between you and Christ. Jesus is beckoning you to fall. Us now. I'm right behind you. Just let me have a moment here. We are to forgive as we've been forgiven. And I want you to know these are not easy words for me to hear either. They have not been easy words for me to wrestle with in my own life. But that's the words. We're to, be, we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. We're to give grace in the way that we receive it. And guess how we receive it? Freely and abundantly and overwhelmingly. We need to let go of our hurts. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not pretending here that it's like, okay, I'm over it. I know it doesn't work that way. But you do have to move towards that. You have to, to seek God's face in restoration that way. You've got to find some way for God to change your hearts. Because if we don't, we're just going to be like Peter, trying to follow Jesus, but we're keeping a distance from him. Make no mistake about that. If you refuse to forgive, especially other believers, you're behaving just like Peter. You're just trying to be close to Christ, but at the same time, you don't want everyone else to see it. The call to follow Christ is to deny yourself. Deny yourself and let things go. By the way, it's for your own good anyway. Now, all these things cause us to be like Peter. These are external and internal pressures, but there's a couple other things too, and I'll just make brief mention of them. 
And one of them I want you to be aware of is it's, it's spiritual immaturity. There are just a lot of Christians who just haven't grown up yet. Right? And they really just haven't really figured out what it means to really follow Christ. Some people are true believers and born again, but they're still immature in their understanding of who Christ is and what Christ is calling them to do. They're immature in their faith. And as a result, they have a low view of God. And, and, and this maturity results in then a, a high view of themselves. This is not like they're bad people and like they're hell-bound sinners. It's just they're just still babies, so to speak. And the truth is many new believers and many immature believers have a man-centered theology. Right? They still are true believers. They just The focus is wrong for them. They haven't learned to have a God-centered view. And the result is there's a tendency to walk you know, not so closely with Christ, but more with the rest of the world. This immaturity kind of like manifests itself in their actions. Right? But this also, and what we have to be aware of and we have to take seriously is the issue that some of this distancing people, that, how they distance themselves from Christ, is also rooted in, in the lack of gospel understanding. A lot of times people just don't remember what the gospel is. And, and, and I'll, I'll lay this squarely on the church in the last you know, century, that, that people have been taught that you learn the gospel, you believe the gospel, and then you move on to the next part of Christianity, Christianity 2.0. The gospel's the way in the door. You don't have to think about that no more. Now it's about you know, going to church and tithing and doing this and doing that and doing this and following all these rules. Suddenly it became about something else. But the truth of the matter is, is the Christian life is always, always, always about the gospel. It never ceases to be about the gospel. Because guess what? You never outgrow your need for it. It's always about dependence upon God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And once you begin to see your dependence upon God and you see your, your wretchedness before a holy, righteous, and just God, suddenly you begin to think less about yourself and more about Him, and you begin to value Him and have a greater desire for Him. Suddenly then, distancing yourself doesn't become quite the issue because you realize the point is Him and not you. But you won't ever get there unless you really see the value of the gospel and what Christ has done for you. You will never see the wretchedness of your sin until you see the beauty of Christ. You will never understand your need to be more like Christ and less like the world unless you actually see the world through the lens of who God is. The gospel is the thing that helps us to see our treasure is Jesus Christ. Our greatest hope is Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is Jesus Christ above being accepted, above being loved, above being vindicated for the wrongs that happened to us. Spiritual immaturity can cause us to keep our distance from Christ. But then also, again, one last thing is false conversion. And I say that is because we have to talk about this. There are times that some people keep their distance from Christ simply because they're not really actually believers. This is not a popular subject in American Christianity, by the way, because everybody wants to just be nice. But I don't, think that, I don't think being loving always means being nice. I think being loving is always telling people the truth. And the truth is there are false converts in the world around us. There are some people that just have a desire for some reason to have a relationship somehow to the church or to Christ. There's some kind of benefit that they think they're getting out of it. But ultimately, they have not been changed. God has not you know, changed their hearts. They have not been born again. And they're false converts, and they're easy to spot because when things get hard, they're some of the first to go. In fact, Jesus talked about that in the parable of the sower. They want the benefits of being a Christian until being a Christian has a cost, and then they'll abandon things. 
These are people we really need to pray for, that God would actually change their hearts. All right, we need to understand then what's happening to them. But we also need to understand also what's happening in this story. And, and with that, we look at this mirror really long and hard, and I'm sure that all of us have seen things where we're like, okay, I need, I need to really get on my face before the Lord. I see that. But I also want to give you, I want to give you hope here because Peter is attempting to follow Christ, right? And he's keeping his distance, right? And he's going to end up denying Christ. He's not going to deny him once, but three times in, a most, in one of the most horrific ways you can deny somebody. But the thing we need to keep in mind is that even though that Peter's abandoning Christ in his actions and his attitudes, Jesus is not abandoning Peter. And I want you to take that home. You in your life, me in my life at points, we're going to distance ourselves from Christ because of something. Something's going to make it be hard. Something's going to challenge us. Something's going to bump into us really, really in a way that we didn't expect. And we're going to find that we're lacking but our hope isn't in our ability, our own ability to remain close to Christ. Our hope is in Christ's ability to keep us. And that's what we see in Peter. Peter will fall down flat on his face and he will deny Christ in the worst possible way. But what will Christ do? Christ is going to restore him. We know that. We know how the story ends. Christ is going to restore him fully. I'm going to ask him, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he's going to, you know that I love you. He's going to ask him that three times. And then he's going to give him leadership and say, now feed my sheep. He's going to make him a leader in the church. Not because of what Peter has done, because of what Christ has done. And I want you to understand that is what our faith is built on. Our faith isn't built on our ability to never, ever deny Christ. Our faith is not ever in our ability to always stay close to Christ. Our faith is in the fact that Christ has promised to never let us go. That's your hope, by the way. Your hope is not in you. Your hope is in Him. And He who began the work in you is faithful to complete it. What we need to see is Christ is faithful even when we're not. And that's the promise that you can hold on to and be secure in even when you do fail. Our salvation doesn't depend on our ability to always do right. Our salvation depends simply on trusting in what Christ has promised to do. And He will do. He's proven it. So with that, let me just briefly then give you a couple of applications for this text. It's a tough one, I know. But I think that, that, that it bears reflection that we do need to take these texts and really ask the questions and examine our hearts. I think we're called, as Paul said, to examine ourselves daily, to, to really look. And I think that's the first application, examine ourselves and ask, where is it that I'm really keeping distance between me and Christ? I mean, I want you to know, like, I know where I am as a man as far as, like, you know, if, if they come to arrest me because I'm here, you know, conducting church because they said not to, I'm prepared to go to jail for that, right? And I'm prepared for people to hate me for that. I'm, I'm already gotten pushback from people that I know and love because of, of this. And I've gotten pushback from people who think that sometimes, you know, Sherman, you just need to be a lot more gentle. Sometimes I might need to, Right? But the reality is, is like, I love you enough to tell you the truth. I don't make any apologies for that because I understand as much as I love you, I don't, I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please him. He's the one that I have to be faithful to. But in that, as much as I can boldly stay, the government has nothing on me. They can take all my money, right? They can take everything away from me. 
there are still areas in my life I do still struggle. I have struggled in my life to be that person that lets go of everything. To let go, especially of hurts. There are times I think I've gotten that under control. I've let go of those hurts and then somebody brings up something happened in my life before and I feel that flare up and I go, that person, and I go, oh, whew, I'm still holding on to that, huh? Oh, Lord. I think we need to examine ourselves and ask the question, what is it that we are doing in our own individual lives that we're allowing ourselves to be distant from Christ? Now, not in the, in the, the worry like, oh my goodness, this is what I'm doing wrong and God's going to hate me. It's like, I see where God needs to change me. And this is where we turn back to our, the roots of our faith and we repent of that and believe the gospel that Christ will do what he promised to do. It's always the same thing. I don't want you to know. Like, it never changes. It doesn't matter if you're like a brand new Christian or you're a Christian for 50 years. The call for us is always the same, to repent and believe, right? You walk out of here and you feel good about yourself and stub your toe and then you say the worst kind of like profanity and then you, you see that you failed again. What do you do? Run from God? No. You go, Lord, I repent of that. I know. I need for this to be something behind me. I repent of that and I'm trusting that you're going to save me, right, in spite of me. And then... You pray that God will change your heart to do the things that, for you that you can't do for yourself. Because ultimately, that's how we close the gap between us and Christ, is for Him to change us. The distance between us and Him just reveals the fact that we still need sanctification, that we still need for Him to shape us more and more into His image. That way we don't end up like Peter. Now again, I praise the Lord that this story is in here to, to remind us of how we can be, but I'm also grateful for the fact that I know the end of the story to know that Peter ultimately is rescued by Christ in spite of Peter. And I want you to know, like, I identify with Peter a whole lot in many respects, especially when he fails. But you and I can take to heart that the God who brought us to life will keep us and sanctify us and bring us safely home. That is our hope. But my encouragement for you this week is to spend that time alone with the Lord and examine yourself. By the way, this is why, one of the many reasons why we need that alone time with the Lord. Right? What's wrong with the world and what's wrong with the Christian church is we just don't have enough time to spend with the Lord. We've got ourselves so busy in our lives that we're failing to do the very fundamental things that we're called to do, which is to get alone with God in prayer and the Word. In fact, if this church would just commit itself to that daily, we would see this community change in a way that we can't even possibly imagine. That's your exhortation this week. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.